Let me invite you to open with me once more to our studies in the Gospel of Mark, working our way through this book together on Sundays and many of our Wednesdays as well. We come today to the ninth chapter, where we'll begin reading in verse 14. Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 14, but before we get there, let's catch up to where we are uh, in this Gospel of Mark. When we gathered around Mark's Gospel uh, on Wednesday night, you may remember Jesus was up on a high mountain in verses 2 through 8, and he was there with three of his disciples, Peter and James and John, where he was transfigured before them and where he met with Moses and Elijah and where God the Father spoke marvelously in verse 7. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then as uh, Peter and James and John and Jesus uh, made their way down the mountain in verses 9 through 13. They had an interesting discussion. Uh, and today beginning in verse 14 uh, we find them back down the mountain and making their way back to the other nine Disciples and finding themselves when they get there in quite a situation. Read it with me now. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Father, so many things are like this. We can't do what we need to do without prayer, without turning to you and asking you to do what only you can do. And so I do that now. I ask you as we open your word, as I attempt to explain it and to proclaim it to this gathering, that you would do what only you can do. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to speak now, not in word only, but in demonstration of the Spirit and with power, and that we would be moved, and we would be helped, and we would be changed. And we ask 
In Jesus' name, amen. Look again at verse 22. The man says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Matthew, who also records these events, tells us that the man here fell on his knees before Jesus, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He fell on his knees. And this is the third time now in Mark's gospel uh, that we have encountered a desperate parent. Do you remember the other two? Uh, one of them we encountered in chapter 5. Uh, let me just read a bit of it to you. Uh, this desperate father in Mark 5, beginning in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please, Come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And then another desperate parent in chapter 7, uh, verses 24 and following, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And now we have a third parent today in chapter 9, Matthew tells us, uh, falling at Jesus' feet, on his knees before Jesus, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. Or here in verse 22, take pity on us and help us. So we have a little bit of a theme, don't we? going in the Gospel of Mark. It's not an accident that Mark uh, tells us now for the third time about a desperate parent. The desperation of a parent. That's our first heading, if you're keeping up with me today. The desperation of a parent. I won't dwell on this long, um, but this father and the previous two parents that we've encountered in Mark as well, at the feet of Jesus, they remind us, don't they, that when we are desperate for our children, whether it's some physical need, uh, as in the case of this first uh, instance in the Gospel of Mark, or some spiritual need, as in the case of these last two, when we are desperate for our children, and some of you perhaps are this morning, and some of us should be uh, this morning perhaps, when we are desperate for our children, there is no better place to be than on our knees before Jesus, because all of these prayers at the feet of Jesus are heard, aren't they? And all of these prayers at the feet of Jesus are answered, aren't they? And all of these children whose parents are at the feet of Jesus are made whole. There's no better place to be when you're desperate for your children than on your knees before Jesus. So be there. Bring your desperation, bring your child or children that you're so concerned about to Jesus and you will find him faithful. No better place to be than at the feet of Jesus. So that's briefly our first heading, the desperation of a parent. And hopefully that encourages some of you to keep on praying. 
But Mark not only shows us the desperation of a parent here, but he also presents us with, uh, he unveils for us, he exposes to us the cruelty of the enemy. The cruelty of our enemy. Did you notice how much detail Mark goes into here as to the suffering of this boy, now man, at the hands of this demon? I don't think this is typical. Um, I didn't go through and read uh, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, to be sure, but to my memory, this isn't typical that the gospel writer would tell us this much about how much damage uh, an evil spirit was doing. Mark tells us a lot here. Did you notice it? Let's just go back and catalog all that he tells us here about the suffering of this uh, man all the way back to his childhood at the hands of this evil spirit. Uh, first of all, uh, we were told in verse 17 that the evil spirit makes this boy mute, prevents him from speaking. And just skipping ahead for a moment to verse 25, it would appear in Jesus' rebuke to the demon that this spirit has made the boy deaf as well. It's not the spirit who's deaf. Jesus speaks to the spirit and he hears and he obeys. But apparently he calls it a deaf and mute spirit because these are the two impacts that it has on this boy. Here's a boy who, because of an evil spirit, is deaf. He can't speak. And not only that, verse 18, the spirit often slams him to the ground and causes him to foam at the mouth and to grind his teeth and to be rigid, uh, stiffened out. It causes him, verse 20, convulsions as well. And then we're told this in verse 22, if, as if all this other weren't enough, this slamming, this throwing uh, down to the ground is often uh, both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. This, this evil spirit has good aim. He's not just throwing this boy down anywhere he can, but he waits until the boy is near a fire or near a, a body of water and throws him into the fire so that he might be burned to death or throws him into the water hoping that he'll be drowned to death. And maybe most striking of all, this evil spirit has been doing these things, verse 21, since this man was a little boy. Sometimes we say, how could someone do that to a child when we hear of abuse on the news or, or from someone that we know? How could someone do that to a child? Here is this demon doing all of these things, taking away speech, taking away hearing, beating up this boy, trying to burn him alive or drown him in the sea to a little boy. And when the spirit does finally come out at Jesus' command. He doesn't do so without so uh, shaking the boy around, rattling him around, that he appears lying on the ground like he's dead. Verse 26. Abject cruelty, right? This is what Satan is like. This is what his minions, the evil spirits, are like. And Satan and his evil minions are like this still. Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, someone to eat alive. And Jesus tells us in John 10 that Satan, the thief, has come only to steal and to kill and to do what these demons are trying to do to this boy, to destroy. The devil and his demonic henchmen are real and they are cruel. 
And what I want to say to you this morning is that they are no less cruel when they attack someone in our own day, often by different means than we see here. Sometimes the devil's attacks aren't quite so loud and boisterous and obvious as they are here. In fact, he does it in ways that people don't even realize sometimes that they're under demonic influence and attack. But it's no less cruel when, for instance, Satan or his demons try to lure some young man into a fascination with occultic practices. Perhaps you've seen it happen. It's destructive. It's cruel. Satan is no less cruel uh, in trying to confuse people in our day about their gender identity. It's destructive and it's cruel. Or when he whispers in some young lady's ear that abortion really is the best option for this little child that she's been given. Or when he tries to convince someone to hurt themselves, cut themselves. Or when he tries to convince young women in our culture to sexualize themselves. All of this is perhaps more subtle, but no less destructive, no less cruel. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that is true also when the devil and his angels are tempting you and yours. And it's true when he is tempting you or they are tempting you in much more run-of-the-mill ways than the examples I've just given or than in the instance we find here in Mark 9. In every way that the devil tempts you to sin, in every way that he tempts you to deviate from God's good way, the thief has come to you to steal from you and to destroy you and to kill you if he can. No matter how small the sin temptation may be that he whispers in your ear, this, Mark 9, is what he's like. This is what he's ultimately trying to get to. Maybe in a different way, but the same end, destruction. And so no matter what the devil and his demons are doing, no matter how run-of-the-mill the temptation in your life, they are attempting to do to you, at least to your soul, what we see them doing uh, him doing cruelly to this man's body here in Mark 9. And so, let's read a little bit further in 1 Peter 5. I quoted to you a portion of it. Let me read you a little bit more. 1 Peter 5, be of sober spirit. Because of what we've seen today, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour but resist him. Resist him. Firm in your faith. And remember what Jesus says in John 10 as well. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. So come to this Jesus. Fall at his feet like this father here, whether it be for your child or for someone else that you know who is under demonic influence or attack or for yourself, come to this Jesus and fall at his feet. There's no better place to be when under demonic attack. So we're given here the desperation of a parent, the cruelty of the enemy. And then thirdly, Mark exposes for us here the unbelief of men. 
I'll take a little bit longer on this one. The unbelief of men. And note there are two kinds of unbelief in two different men here. One is the unbelief of misplaced trust in the disciples. And we'll look at that momentarily. The disciples uh, have a kind of unbelief that is belief in something other than God and in his son. And then the other kind of unbelief that we see here in the father is the unbelief of doubt. And we'll come and look at that as well. But let's start with the unbelief of the disciples here. This boy is brought to them, you remember, uh, in, uh, up in uh, verse 16, or the boy is brought to them before we ever get to verse 14, actually. But we're told in verse 16 uh, that he is brought to, the, to them and they cannot, verse 18, do anything to help him. The father brings the boy. He tells the disciples, cast this demon out. You're followers of Jesus. Cast this demon out. And they can't do it. Verse 18. And thus Jesus calls them an unbelieving generation. That's why I say uh, we have an example of unbelief here. Jesus himself tells us they are an unbelieving generation. He answered them. I don't think he's talking in verse 19 about the father who has just spoken to him. He answered them, plural. I think it's talking about the disciples, the ones that the father's just referenced. They couldn't do it. And Jesus looks at the ones who couldn't do it and says, oh, unbelieving generation. Now, how is it that they're not believing? Well, it could be that the disciples uh, have the same kind of unbelief that we're going to see in the Father momentarily. It could be that they are struggling with an unbelief of doubt. It could be that they are struggling with an unbelief that says, okay, he wants us to cast this demon out, but I'm not really sure if God's going to do this through us. We'll try, but I don't know. It could be that kind of unbelief, a, a doubt in their hearts as to God's ability or God's willingness, more likely in this case, to do it. But verses 28 and 29, down at the end of our passage, reveal a different sort of unbelief. Maybe they were doubting, but they certainly had this other kind of unbelief that's revealed in verses 28 and 29. After this is all over, when he, had come, when he came into the house, his disciples, verse 28, began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Cannot come out by anything but prayer. So here's the situation. Evidently, they thought they could do this. They thought they could do it and were so confident that they could do it that they didn't bother to stop and pray for God's help to do it. So maybe they thought they could do it just by speaking the right words over this boy. If we say the right kinds of things, if we say the kinds of things Jesus says, then the demon will come out. Or maybe they thought, hey, We've done this before, chapter 6. Jesus gave us once before the strength, the authority uh, to cast out demons, and we went out and did it. And so in the strength of that prior endowment, or just in the strength of the fact that, hey, we're experienced at this, we've done this before, we will just say the word and this demon will go out. Or perhaps they just thought about their own spiritual thing, strength and thought, you know, we've been following Jesus, we can do this. But one way or the other, they presumed that they could do this apparently. They thought they could do it, but they didn't pray for God's help. And they fell flat on their faces. And what Jesus calls this back in verse 19 is unbelief. Unbelief. 
because they were trusting, evidently, in something other than God himself. Again, trusting in their experience, trusting in their own spirituality, trusting in saying the right words, whatever it was, we're not told. But evidently, they tried to cast the demon out, and so they trusted something to enable them to do it. But they didn't pray, which means they didn't trust God. Their unbelief was a misplaced trust in something other than God. Now, again, they may have doubted too. They may have had that kind of belief, but they had enough, or that kind of unbelief, I should say, but they had enough belief in something to at least attempt to do it. The man doesn't say your disciples wouldn't cast him out. Your disciples didn't try to cast him out. He says they could not do it. They had enough belief in something to attempt this exorcism. But what we're told is that the attempt was done without prayer. It was done in presumption. It was done trusting something other than God. And trusting in something other than God is, as it stands between us and our maker, unbelief, right? Unbelief, misplaced trust. How about you? The goal here is not just to simply uh, talk about the disciples and say, what a bunch of knuckleheads they were, uh, unbelieving uh, generation they were. But what about you and what about me? Find yourself trusting in your own wisdom, trusting in your own effort, trusting in your own planning, trusting in the fact that I've done this before, rather than trusting in God. How would you know if you're doing that? Well, often it would be that you would attempt to do something that patently requires God's help and you will do it without ever asking for God's help. Attempting without praying is attempting without believing. Are you doing that in some areas of your life? This is convicting to me because uh, as some of you read in the article that I sent out earlier this week, um, I find myself often uh, attempting uh, without praying, often faced with something and going, okay, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to deal with this, I'm going to attack this, I'm going to attempt this, and forgetting how badly I need God's help and letting that show by the fact that I never stop and ask him for his help. Are you like that? Well, here's one kind of unbelief. And before we go to the other, let's just note what the results are. Um, because that's important. The results, the sad results of this trusting in something other than God has two results here. One, of course, they cannot help this man. And you may find that many times. You're frustrated in the things you're trying to do. Maybe even like the disciples here, things you're trying to do for God and you're not making any headway. Maybe, I'm not saying this is always the case, but maybe it's that you never stopped to pray because you trusted in yourself instead of God. They can't help this man, but, but notice, notice another uh, fruit, another bad fruit of this unbelief that might be easy to overlook. I don't think I've ever noticed it before. Um, this unbelief in Jesus' followers here gives uh, his critics up in verse 14 ammunition against him. Did you notice what happens in verse 14? Before we get to verse 14, remember, uh, we're told later that before we ever got to verse 14, this man 
who has a demon-possessed son, has come to the disciples and said, cast it out, right? And you might think then when the, Jesus and uh, Peter and James and John get to the bottom of the mountain, you might think, who will be arguing? It will be this man and the disciples, right? I asked you to cast it out. You couldn't do it. What's wrong with you guys? And they're going, well, hey, we tried our best. You would think that would be what the argument might be between the father and the disciples. But no, that's not what we're told in verse 14. What we're told when, in verse 14 is that after the disciples fail here, there's an argument not between the father and the disciples, but between the scribes and the disciples. And you may remember from the Gospel of Mark or just from your knowledge of the four Gospels in general, the scribes are uh, among Jesus' constant critics. And... It's the critics here that are arguing with the disciples about this failed attempt to cast out the demon. Why are they arguing? What, why do they care? What dog do they have in this fight? Well, I think it must be that the argument that was going on in verse 14 was something like this. Ha ha, see, we knew Jesus was a fraud. We knew your master was a fraud because look, these people have come to you with this problem and you, his followers, can't do anything about it. And the disciples, for their part, are going, no, 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 you don't get it. Jesus isn't a fraud. If he were here, he would cast out the demon. And back and forth they go, right? I think that's what's going on in verse 14. And so you see, by their unbelief, which results in their inability to, to operate in the power of God here, they are giving an opportunity for these scribes, for these critics, to have just one more thing to chalk in their column against Jesus. His disciples can't even, can't even help this person. And oh, that we wouldn't end up in that same situation. Powerless to walk in the Spirit. Powerless to be mighty for the Lord because we don't trust the Lord and therefore don't pray to the Lord and therefore giving the opponents of Jesus in our day opportunity to look at us and go, you see these Christians, they don't, they're not any different than anybody else. Their lives look like everybody else. There doesn't seem to be any spiritual power. There doesn't seem to be really any answers to their prayers any more than mine that I pray not knowing who I'm praying to. And so their Jesus must be a fraud. That's what we do. If we don't believe and therefore don't pray and therefore don't have power in the spirit. Let's not be there. Let's not go there. Let's not engage in the unbelief of misplaced trust. Trusting in ourselves or something else besides in our God. But then there's another sort of unbelief here, isn't there? Uh, another sort of unbelief which... If it is carried on, and if it's deep enough, will also land us without results, and will also give Jesus, Jesus' opponents opportunity and ammunition to criticize him. And that's the unbelief of doubt, the unbelief that we see in this father in verses 22 through 24. Listen to it. He says to Jesus about this demon, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now, let me rescue this man here by saying his unbelief isn't total. Obviously, uh, he says that himself. His unbelief isn't as bad as the disciples. 
Um, first of all, he hasn't had as much opportunity as they've had, presumably. And second of all, his unbelief actually is mingled with enough faith that he gets an answer here, right? His unbelief isn't, uh, doesn't prove to be so deep-seated as to, to leave him without an answer to his prayer. And yet... The fact remains that Jesus points out and the man admits here that there is unbelief in him, right? He believes, but there's unbelief as well. And it's the unbelief in this case of doubt. It's the unbelief that says not since you can, but if you can. It's a big difference, right? If he had come to Jesus and said, Jesus, since you can do all things, help us out here. He doesn't say since, he says if. He doubts, he wonders if Jesus can do it. And Jesus calls him on it, doesn't he? If you can. And Jesus speaks to us this way as well. And I must ask you again, how about you on this point? Are you an if you can prayer to God? I suspect most of us aren't if you can type prayers. I suspect that most of us uh, at least know our theology enough not to say something like this man says, at least, if you can do it, Jesus, because we know, or at least we, we tell ourselves that we know that Jesus can do all things, right? So we might not say, we might not even think to, to ourselves, I wonder if Jesus can do this. But while we confess readily that Jesus can help us, that Jesus can do anything, I think more likely for us is the question, not if we believe he can, but if we believe he will. If we believe he will. Or at least if, like this man, there is mingled with our belief that he will some doubt that he might not. I wonder if there's something like that in your life. I'm not advocating name it and claim it theology. We understand that God's will is beyond our finding out. And sometimes he wills for things that we don't know to pray. Better things than we are praying for. I'm not denying that. But do you ever find yourself going to Jesus for help and not even wondering, will he give me the exact help that I think I need or will it be something else? But wondering if it's going to help you at all. Again, you might not say that, but very often that's how it is. And the way we know that is because we go to his help, ask him for his help, but then we proceed as though he weren't going to do anything. Is there something like this in your life? You've prayed about it, but deep in your heart, there's at least some level of doubt if Jesus is going to come through, if Jesus is going to answer, if God is going to do something for you in this situation. And maybe you can tell it by the way you've proceeded to live as though he's not. What is it for you? Well, just look at the Gospel of Mark. Not just this passage, but this Gospel as a whole so far through eight plus chapters. Does Jesus let believing people down? Do we find Jesus leaving believing prayers unanswered? Do we find Jesus leaving his trusting people having to figure stuff out for themselves and sort of scramble to come up with their own solution? No, right? Of course not. Every time we find someone in the Bible coming to Jesus in faith, he delivers. And so, as Jesus would go on to say on another occasion later in his ministry, he says to us today, do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Pray with this man here in verse 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. Admit, yes, that there is unbelief almost always mingled in with our belief. But be the kind of person, by God's grace, who can say, I do believe. I do, Jesus. So we have in this passage today the desperation of a parent. We have the cruelty of the enemy. We have the unbelief of men. And then finally, we have here very simply, best of all, the wonder of Jesus. The book of Mark is, is not, first of all, about demons or parents or believers or unbelievers, is it? It's a book about Jesus. And what we have most importantly of all in this passage and in all of these passages is the wonder, the beauty, the splendor of Jesus. Notice it with me in three ways here before we finish. First of all, see Jesus here in his mercy, in his mercy. First of all, on this poor suffering demoniac, right? The father comes to him and says, have mercy upon my son. And Jesus grants him mercy, doesn't he? But see it also, his mercy on this doubting father. This man comes to him, he asks Jesus for help, but there's clearly doubt mingled in with his faith. And Jesus points that out. But notice how he continues. He doesn't say, when the man says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus doesn't say, if you can, I'm not going to deal with your unbelief today. If you can, I don't answer people who don't trust me fully. That's not what Jesus says, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? He gives the man a chance to circle back and say, yes, I do believe. But I know I don't believe enough. He gives this man in his mercy a chance, as it were, to ask again, to demonstrate his faith in some small way. Isn't that good? The man doesn't come to him like he ought to come to him. And yet Jesus doesn't turn him away. He's merciful. And so he is with you. You so often and so do I, we come to Jesus in the wrong ways with doubt in our hearts, sometimes with our hearts filled with doubt. And yet when we come to him, his believing people, even with doubts, even full of doubts sometimes, he doesn't simply smack us on the wrist and send us away and tell us to come back when we've improved our attitude. He's patient with us. He's merciful to us. He gives us second opportunities and sometimes third opportunities and sticks with us. And sometimes he even helps us even with no faith in our hearts. What mercy is in Jesus? Go to him. Doesn't it make you want to? Go to him. But look at his, his wonder here, not only in his mercy, but in his authority. All this demonic power, remember? This demon has the power to make a man unable to speak. He has the power to stop up his ears, to throw a grown man to the ground, to shake him with convulsions, and all of the stuff we read. And yet, Jesus simply speaks. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Jesus simply speaks and the demon gets gone. The demon obeys because Jesus, as he says later, has been given all authority in heaven and in earth. That's someone 
that you want to pray to, isn't it? That's someone at whose feet you want to fall. He has all authority, and he has authority over whatever it is that ails you today, whether it be demonic, physical, spiritual, or otherwise. All authority is in the hands of this Jesus. Fall at his feet, and you won't be disappointed. One more thing here about the wonder of Jesus. See his wonder in his tenderness. In his tenderness. Listen to me beginning again in the middle of verse 25. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. Now, just notice the juxtaposition here. This mighty demon and Jesus simply speaks and the demon does what he says. This boy who's so, or this man who's so shaken up that he looks like he's dead, Jesus could, he has the authority, he could have just spoken to the boy and said, okay, now, you're well, get up and go home. And that would have been merciful, that would have been kind and everything else. But he goes beyond that, doesn't he? He could have just spoken to the boy, but he actually lays a hand on the boy. He actually takes the boy by his own hand and raises him up tenderly. Doesn't it mean something when someone takes you by the hand? <coughs> it's just a little glimpse. It's not the most important thing in this passage, of course, but it's just a little glimpse of the tenderness of Jesus. He could do this with his mere voice, but he does it with his outstretched hand. He's tender-hearted toward this man, and he's tender-hearted toward us as well, isn't he? He's tender-hearted to us in our difficulties, the very things that you've been thinking about today, that you wish you trusted God more with, the things that you wish you prayed uh, more earnestly about or prayed at all about, the children that you're desperate for, all these things that have been in your mind today, Jesus is tender towards you in these things. He's powerful, yes, praise God. But he also is tender and he will handle you in ways that make you to know that. And he's tender in the midst of our unbelief, isn't he? We saw it with his father. He doesn't slap his wrist and send him away and tell him to come back tomorrow. He's tender. He is gentle and patient. He's tender. Some of you could say he was tender with me in the way he brought me to himself and to his cross in the first place. In the way he helped me see my sin and see that I needed a savior and see that he had died to become my savior. He did all that for me so gently. Merciful, authoritative, tender Jesus. There's no better place to be than on your knees before him.